0: Hi there, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. Given our current context, what does it mean to live well in this moment? And how can we make changes that will shape the world we will live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? We do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, and typically living in places that are not front of mind in discussions about disruption. But we think these people are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. We want us all to get as much as possible out of these stories, to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption.
1: I took my daughter to have a look at it recently and I was picking up a little beach off the ground. And I said to her, I said, do you realize this tree 600 years ago, this tree was just this beech nut. And now 600 years, it's been there. It's never moved. It's stayed there and everything it needed was right here.
0: question that has been on my mind since starting this podcast is about the other subtle disruption that's happening in other parts of the world outside of Melbourne and outside of Australia and how I might understand and tap into those stories. i thought about traveling to those places myself getting to know the people and releasing them as episodes and then a man called Richard Holmes reached out to me after he came across the podcast. He lives in Gloucester in England and we've been getting to know each other for the past year or so over email and Zoom and during this time we were thinking about a lot of things but thought about the idea of him contributing to the podcast through recording his episodes over there with Subtle Disruptors that he knew. He's doing a lot of great stuff himself, which I think you'll come to hear about through the conversations he records. But in brief, he's enabling community-led development and systems change. He's doing the messy work in between those two areas, as he puts it. So you might say that this episode marks a shift, and I think it's a pretty exciting shift. It's the first to be recorded by someone other than me, and in this and in our upcoming episodes, you'll start to hear from subtle disruptors in parts of the world other than Australia, and interviewed by people other than me. The spirit of the podcast won't be changing. It will still be about hearing the stories of people who are making an important, subtle contribution to the questions of what it means to live well in this moment, and what can we do now to create a world that is closer to the one we want to inhabit. And you will continue to hear me interviewing the subtle disruptors of Melbourne and other places around Australia as well. Now for a bit about Richard's first episode. Around the time he turned 40, this week's guest had a moment where, to use his phrase, found that the ladder he was climbing was resting against the wrong wall. The unfolding of this realisation led to dramatic life changes and five years exploring the Lakes District of England. It was a journey of getting lost in nature to find his own true nature. Now almost two decades on from this moment, he helps other people go through a similar process of connecting deeply with nature to understand more about themselves. I'm Adam Murray and thanks for listening to Richard Holmes interview Ian Banyard on the subtle disruption of immersing ourselves in nature.
2: It's been a long time since we caught up, hasn't it? It has. What's yeah. that, about I mean, 10 years we know each other? About 10 We've got kids. <laughs> we got kids now that Everything's younger. changed. I've lost <laughs> hair. So we normally start these conversations describing where we are and why yeah. we're here. So you chose this spot, so why are we
1: here? <laughs> I chose Crickley Hill in Gloucestershire. It's one of the highest points here. And we grew up in Hucklecoat, which is just below the hill here. So Crickley Hill was somewhere we would come up to as kids, because uh, there were only three um, channels on the TV back in those days and kind of kids' TVs shut down early. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah, no, remember. no, I do remember that. So I was in nature a lot as a child, and this is one of the places I would come to. One of the other places I would come to is Chosen Hill, which you can also see from here. <laughs> And Chosen Hill was really my back garden. I could come out of my house, I lived on the council estate there, and I could literally come out the front door, run across the road, past the garages, over the brook, over the, uh, over the bypass, using the bridge, obviously, for safety. And then I was up in the, uh, in the pine woods at the top of uh, Chosen Hill in about 25 minutes. So uh, I couldn't do it now, but back then, to me, Chosen Hill was my playground, but it was also my sanctuary. It was the place that, if life got tough at home, which I, I had some tough times as a kid, I would slam the door, storm out, and I could yeah. be on the hill literally in 25, 30 minutes. I could be at the top of the hill, up a tree, just sitting up there with a totally different perspective on the world, feeling much calmer and more emotionally balanced. And that was Chosen Hill, that was there. And what's really interesting, what I've learned as I've got older is this Crickley Hill's a very special place just across through the woods here is the Iron Age hillfort yeah. that may even be older than Iron Age. It probably goes back even further than that. And uh, I think what people used to think about these hillforts is it's where everybody lived. They all lived on these hillforts where they could be protected and see what was going on. But actually, there's no water up here. One of, the, one of the problems up on this hill is there's no natural access to water. You have to go down the hill to get to the water. So I don't think they lived here. What I think these places were is I think they were the hillforts where if any danger came up the River Severn, because you can see all the way down the River Severn, all the way down yeah, to the have got the
2: stunning sea. views here.
1: And we've got all the way along this ridge, the Cotswold Ridge, are these beacons, Painswick yeah. Beacon, Crickley Hill. And what we understand was happening was if any danger came up either across from Wales or was coming up through the river, at the River Severn, they would light the beacons all the way up. And I think what it was, the beacons were to tell people that there was danger coming and what would happen is people would have come up from the valley where all the lush farmland and everything was they would come up and they would come into these hill forts for sanctuary and to hide themselves away so i kind of feel in a way instinctively when i have troubles and i come up somewhere high i come up somewhere high into nature so for me quickly Hillsbury is very special because i can see where i grew up i can kind of see my life in gloucester i can also see my life in cheltenham because i now work in cheltenham and have offices there the other lovely thing about here as well is it's the, it's the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust, one of their headquarters up here now. They've taken over management of this beautiful space. And so I'm a member of Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust and obviously wildlife is very important to me. And so this is just the perfect place. And
2: you know, we just had a nice coffee, so coffee yeah. and nature. Uh, <laughs> what better place to meet? It's fascinating that it's a place of sanctuary. And that's certainly, that's how I felt actually when mm. things get a bit too much for me. I do find myself going up onto hills where there's space, where mm. there's space to think and physical space to move. Yeah, there is definitely something about
1: that. My father was the same. You know, maybe I, you know, I picked that up from him. Or maybe it's instinctive, because you're talking about it as well. And I, I kind of think, and certainly as a man, I often struggle in life when I can't fight and I can't run away. And it's like, well, what do I do then? Yeah. <laughs> because to me, logically thinking well, I've either got to fight this threat or I've got to run away from it. Yeah. What What is What's in the, the middle of that? And so, you know, often I used to say, well, I used to flee to the top of the hill or I'd flee into nature. But one of the things, um, when I fled into nature uh, around the age of 40, back in the 2000s, I went and lived in the Lake District for five years. One of the things that I didn't learn, but I kind of reconnected with and, and it kind of was more insightful was something about the natural world there was, what I think it was, is it's about environment. You know, I kind of know that certain environments are just not great for us. You know, you just go into certain environments and it just feels very clinical or very, it's not very natural. So for me, I've always been tuned into, I like natural environments. And I think why I like natural environments is is it links to my my true nature. The, The person I was as a child, before I learned to kind of conform and live in a manufactured, yeah. world you know the kind of the world of school and the world of work i didn't have a, i didn't have a very regular childhood you know my childhood was not clear i lived in about six or seven places before i was settled yeah. here so we moved a lot as children so i you know there was no there was no certainty there was nothing that was certain so i was very used to moving around and fluidity and i found that when i went to the lake districts, there was something very comforting about being
2: close to nature because i think it brought me closer to my true nature that's really interesting. Do you find it gives you a sense of rootedness and a sense of who you are and authenticity?
1: It does, it does. I do feel very rooted. I, I call it sanctuary, I suppose, in that respect. But, you know, if you think about trees, and I've always been fascinated by, you know, if you walk through a forest, when a tree comes over, and there's a lovely one actually here in the woods where, the, where trees have come over. Some come over and the roots come up. And some go over and the roots stay in, but the one here has snapped been here since I was a child. It's almost become fossilized, this tree. I think it must have been struck by lightning or something, and then it cracked. But I've always been really interested in the roots of trees and how a lot of what the tree is, is below the surface. It's there. And I think that's the same with us. A lot of of us is below the surface. Things like, you know, I talk about values, our values and, you know, our intentions are kind of what's often beneath the surface. What's above the surface is how we behave and what we do and what we achieve. But, you know, that idea of rootedness is, you know, that idea of of being able to connect more to
2: what's the the deeper. There's an African proverb that goes along the lines of when the roots are deep, you don't need to fear the wind. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: (laughs) And I've always been struck by that because it kind of gives you that sense of when you reconnect with your values and who you are, you don't Mm. need to worry about the things that are happening around you because you can stay true to yourself. Yeah, yeah. There's a lovely tree very close to where I live in Linoval Wood which is probably
1: about a mile or two along the escarpment here and um, there's a 600 year old beech tree called the heritage tree there and I took my daughter to have a look at it recently and I was picking up a little beech off the ground and I said to her I said do you realise this tree 600 years ago this tree was just this beech nut and now look 600 years it's been there it's never moved it's stayed there and everything it needed was right here, yeah. and it, for 600 years it's taken everything it needs from the soil and around it and all these other trees around it. These are all its children, all its family here as well. And um, it's amazing because when you think how often we, I don't know about you, but how often we move home, move job, Absolutely. move relationship. It's like, this isn't yeah. working, let's go somewhere else. Trees can't do that. What you said about the deep roots is, the other thing that roots do is, and you'll see it, you see it up here beautifully, where the land is eroded away, is you'll see that beech trees here, they fuse, the roots fuse together. They don't just link together, they literally fuse. So they're feeding each other and connected to each other. So if one got cut down,
2: the tree would still keep living because it would draw food from the other trees around it. It's amazing. I didn't know that until recently, (laughs) and I'd heard, I don't know if this is true, but I'd read that the world's biggest organism is the aspen forest. Is that true? That's absolutely true. You might have read the same book I've read. I can't there's a new, remember there's where a I saw
1: it. There's a book that I read not so long ago that was all about, or I read about it there. So it's basically saying, you know, when a road goes through the forest, often we'll go, animals are crossing the road. It's not, No, the road is crossing the forest. Yeah. Because that forest is a huge organism, as you say, and those roots are connected. So when you put a big road straight through a forest, you're cutting off half of that organism from the other half. The animals crossing the road are just
2: a small part of that big connection, that web. I think that sometimes we forget in our own lives how interdependent we are on the things that are around us. And that's what mm. that story about the Aspen Forest mm. is teaching me in a way that, you know, those trees aren't singular trees that are standing on their own. Underneath the soil is this network of roots mm. which are feeding each other's tree. Yeah. And, just fascinating to think about that as, as us as human beings as well and our interdependency on the people yeah. around us. Well,
1: here's the interesting thing as well. I talked about being in the Lake District when I was 40 and I, and I had my breakthrough. <laughs> I was living in the Lake District and five years I was there. And what I started to notice, because I walked in nature a lot, I was getting the work-life balance right. So I'd done 18 years of working for Royal Mail and I you know, climbed the corporate ladder and I often say to people it was leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> so, so I kind of jumped <laughs> off. Back then in the 90s, I kind of jumped off and then found myself at the t- turn of the millennium, very feeling very unfulfilled and kind of like, I, I need to change something. This The route I'm taking is not the direction I'm going in. It's is a direction I could go in, but it's not true to my nature. I need to, to take a different path. And I always say I found myself in the Lake District, which eventually I did, found myself there. But that connection with nature up there was very much about... Uh, do you know, that always happens to me. I would go, it's almost like my my mind works like a root system sometimes. So I start following I this have train exactly the same. Thing. and then it's like, how do you get, how, how, did, I where, get, how
2: did I get back there? Where was I going to? <laughs> how did I get back there? But it, it'll probably come back to me. I'm really interested about when nature came into your consciousness. And yeah. obviously it's been there in your childhood and then yeah. you went through royal, your career at Royal Mail and then kind of hit that moment where mm. something had to change. My sense is that you found nature at a subconscious level, realising that it was a, yeah, a place where you had sanctuary. Mm, mm. But at what point in your life did you realise that there was more that you need to be consciously aware of?
1: I've always been an observer as a child. I wasn't an extrovert. Uh, I was very secretive as a child. I would keep my home life... You know, I, you know, I kind of went to school and everything like everybody else, but I didn't want, didn't want my home life being broadcast at school. My mum um, had a mental illness... So that was one of the reasons why we kept it very quiet. In the 60s, it wasn't understood the same. So there was a lot of stigma around it. So as a result, I was quite a secretive child. So I didn't really connect and join in with a lot of what's going on. So I observed it. And I think by observing it, I felt disconnected from life for a long period of time. But because I was disconnected from it, I was kind of able to be more mindful of it. I was able to sort of in my own mind, question things and kind of go, well, why do people do that? Why is that the way it is? Why don't people... Okay. A great example is some friends of mine, I say friends, school friends of mine found, um, they found a nest of salamanders. As, you know, we don't get many salamanders around these days, but yeah. they found a nest of salamanders. They could have been newts, I suppose, but um, could have even been salamanders. And they were frightened of them and started to hurt them. And I got really upset. And I noticed when I saw people hurting nature, I used to get really, really upset. But as a boy, my upset almost became more of a a focal point than what people were doing to nature. So I learned to kind of hide that. I learned to kind of cover up my sensitivity to the natural world. But because I covered it up, I think it's always been something that I've needed to express that. I've needed to recognize it's not just me that cares deeply about nature. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And just because
1: the first few people that I came across didn't seem to care about it and didn't seem to value it, I actually think there's more people in the world that care deeply but have just disconnected rather than people in the world that don't care and want to hurt. So I think it was something about being separate as a child and observing almost gives you more insight than you get if you're too in, you know, you're too in the world or part of the world. When you're involved in something, it was the same when I was at Royal Mail, when I was in the organisation, it's very difficult to change the organisation and see what wasn't working in the organisation from within it. It's only when you step out of it and can see it from a
2: distance. And you get a different perspective. Different
1: perspective. And you go, God, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Why doesn't somebody say this? Because similar with arguments, if I'd watch an argument, i go, why didn't this person just say that? Because if they just said that, there'd be no conflict. That was in my head, but it wasn't in the people involved... I think when you get too connected to things sometimes, you lose perspective. And so I think what I learned as a child was disconnecting first, but then reconnecting. And so for me, this is very much what I'm doing, is trying to reconnect people, not just to the natural world, but to use the natural world to reconnect them to their true nature. Because I think our true nature is good. But <laughs> maybe a naive belief that you know deep down, we want what's good in the world, but sometimes that gets covered by trying to survive
2: so naturalness and natural mindfulness in particular is part of your identity now yeah but how did that particularly come about for you what led you down that path there's two things really one was i was
1: looking for something that was me- i was looking for a name that people could connect to, you know like a brand or something
2: <laughs> I, need like brand. That. I need
1: a brand <laughs> I, need to, I need something that's memorable and um looked at a number of things and Natural, I wanted something that wasn't manipulated. It wasn't man-made. It wasn't manufactured. It wasn't something that somebody could take and use. I didn't want to become a, you know, I own this. I wanted something that wasn't ownable. That, it's an idea that you could guide people to it, not teach people it. So natural was, was, I wanted natural in it. And the fact that it was nature, natural nature, not manufactured was the first bit. So I knew I wanted natural there. And mindfulness was starting to become very popular in sort of the 2014, it was, it was, it was making a comeback. But uh, to me, mindfulness, I often say, you know, there's a lot of lovely mindfulness around. I've done a mindfulness-based mindfulness based course, cognitive therapy course, MBCT course, eight-week course I've done to understand how mindfulness is being taught. There's also a very religious side to mindfulness as well. But what I wanted was m- literally mindfulness that's just the opposite of mindlessness, so to me it's I know we all know what mindlessness is it's, it's not being aware of you know, what's happening and, and what the consequences of that are so mindfulness is the opposite of mindlessness so natural mindfulness just came to me on a walk
2: and I guess the idea of natural is also opposite of the mechanic mechanical world yeah, which yeah. most of us live in yeah so it, it feels to me that there is a shift that many of us are trying to make in our lives that we're we live predominantly in a mechanical world. Many of us are trying to find an alternative way. <laughs> and looking to nature and inspiration, nature for inspiration, it is a place where many of us are turning to because of its organic fluid nature, I guess.
1: And nature's been here a lot longer than we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, one is we
2: are nature. Yeah. You know, we are we're, part of it
1: We're in the ecosystem. We haven't come from anywhere else as far as I'm aware. <laughs> and nature will be here long after we've gone. Nature comes back. You know, you come to places sometimes that have been very industrial. There's places around here that are quite industrial. I grew up, and you know Brockworth very well. Yeah. When I grew up, that was an airfield. That, you know, that was there. That's where I live now. (laughs) That was there from the war. But nature will come back. what we saw. As soon as they stopped using it as an airfield, nature just came back. It continues to. So for me, nature is something that you can rely on, that comes in cycles. I'm very much a believer in cycles, not one or the other, right or wrong. I like this idea of cycles. And so, you know, attuning ourselves to natural cycles, natural laws, seems to me an intelligent thing to do rather than try and live to manufactured and manipulated laws and ways of being but you know i was always told well if you step outside of the you know society you'll do damage to yourself or you might do damage to society but i think you know as children maybe you need that message but as adults as you mature you know maybe there is scope to move outside of some of the ways that we do things to start changing them
2: so what do you think that nature can teach us about how we lead our lives either within our families, our communities, or professional lives in our organisations?
1: Well, the first thing for me, for nature, was it, was it was to help me recover. I've kind of looked at the process I went through when I returned into a natural world. I said I, I was in the natural world as a child and then, and then forgot about it and you know, had a career and that didn't work out, so I ended up back in the natural world again for five years. And I think what it kind of taught me is that there was this kind of development path for me. And the first one was about finding myself. And I say I found myself in nature. So, yeah, I found myself in nature because I ran away to nature. But I actually found me in nature. Because when you kind of strip away everything, which is, that's what I call preparing. When (laughs) you say strip away, you're talking about sort the material aspects of life. Well, yeah, yeah. Everything that made me up, you know, when I was in my 40s, everything that my life was based on actually wasn't really me. It wasn't really me. It was what I thought I needed to be in order to... Do the right job, be in the right relationship. It was all just yeah. layers. Now you strip away those layers, which is called preparing. That's the word prepare it means to strip away and cooker it. So I like the word prepare rather than plan, because you can't really plan. You know, that means thinking about the future and changing it. So for me, preparing was very much about that. Was the first thing. Peel away all of the stuff that isn't me, and then what you're left with is basically it. Now, what will happen is life will do that to you. I think midlife crisis is very much about all the ways you thought you needed to be in order to be a success in life and people love you and be, you know, and actually fit in, that all strips away. And what you're left with is actually who you naturally are. And that might not be the greatest person because it's often a neglected part of you. So when I was in the lakes, it was the best place to be. I think I went there because there's not a lot of people there and I could actually do less damage in the lakes. I always say I went from the people pleaser to a people hater almost overnight. So when I was there, that what I found happened is that once I discovered my true nature but then there was a period of healing and i think after discovering your true nature it's like discovering an adopted child that you may not have known was a part of your family and then you when you find them again there's this joy at finding this adopted child and then there's this healing because it's like why why was i given away why didn't you want me and i felt that my true nature felt neglected through a lot of my 40 odd years so there was a lot of time while i was in the lake district where i was coming back to terms with that and a lot of healing there and after the healing, there's the kind of the really getting to know who you truly are. Because at some point, you get the, you get the decision of, am I going to go back to the world again? Because I couldn't live in the lakes forever. I was running out of money. I needed to go back, you know, and come back and do stuff. But it's then, do you come back as who you were and go through the same crisis again? Or do you come back as who you truly are? And that takes a lot of courage to release your true nature. And for me... I like the idea of going into, into nature as a real journey into nature, but also as a metaphor for journeying into nature to discover your true nature, to heal your true nature, to get to know your true nature, and then find the courage to release that true nature back into the world, where you can make a difference by being more natural
2: than manufactured or manipulated. That sort of personal journey into transformation It is quite scary for a lot of us. It's
1: terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying because everything is based on, you have to have a career, you've got to have a mortgage, you've got to have a family. And I just, you know, for me, I was getting higher and higher and higher up this building. I often say it was like I was on a train and I was the only one on the train that was aware that this train was going somewhere. Everybody else was just in the carriage, reading their papers on their phones, whatever. Just carrying on as usual. I was looking out the window going, this train doesn't go to where I want it to go and it's getting faster and faster and faster. And so for me, it was like, I've got to jump off if I don't want to end up there, I've got to jump off this train and I might not survive. And literally in 1998, 99, 2000, I jumped with nowhere, not knowing what the outcome of that was. I went through divorce, I resigned from my job, couldn't get another one that paid me as much after yeah. that. lost both my parents. They both died in 2002 from stress-related illness. Wow. And I was like, I've lost everything here. Yeah. But the weirdest thing for me was that by losing everything, I realised that the opposite of losing was finding because I couldn't win back my family. I couldn't win back my money. I couldn't win back my parents. I couldn't yeah. win that back. And I'd always learned the opposite of losing was winning Yeah, because <laughs> it was a male thing. So it was the wrong paradigm. It was the wrong paradigm. And then I, and it just came to me and the said, hang on. Sometimes when you lose, you have the opportunity to find. So I always say I found the true me. I found my true nature. And I didn't particularly like that true nature because parts of my true nature were, were quite primitive but what i learned to do in the lakes and since then was to develop my true nature so that my true nature was the type of person i take to a party or a networking meeting or, or and, and what i found is my true nature is so much more powerful than the manufactured and manipulated nature well, it's not even nature it's the, the personality i was using to be successful in the world But I'm so much more successful now in terms of relationships, in terms of my health, in terms of my business, because I'm true to my nature. And what helped me become true to my nature was getting lost in nature and allowing myself to realign, reconnect with the natural world. And that's what I'm now trying to... That's what my mission is now, is to do that for as many people as possible, Uh, which is why I'm training guides and why I'm...
2: Well, it'd be good to know a little bit more about the organisation that you're growing. I think mm. growing is probably the right word in this context. Yeah, yeah, the organism I'm growing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: organisation comes, I guess it comes from the word organism. Yeah. But um, I, I find sometimes there aren't words. There's, there's often not words. Yeah. We need new language we need, stuff. new language we yeah. need new language. I've got a new word I use at the moment called naturepreneur. I actually say I'm a naturepreneur rather than an entrepreneur. I've kind of evolved now into a naturepreneur because I'm trying to align everything to natural laws. You know, if you plant seeds... You're not digging them up to see how they're growing, but often in business, you know, we start a new project and then we're we're immediately trying to, you know, find out why isn't it working? What's going on? You know, we're digging in there and interfering when we need to let nature take its course and allow things to develop in their own time. So much of that
2: takes time that in our society we're so impatient. We want want quick results. We want to know, you know, we want our KPIs in every quarter. Mm. When... Some of the stuff that really matters is going to take years, and sometimes the stuff we're talking about here is, is kind of generational change. Look at climate at the moment, it's one of the biggest issues
1: now globally is climate. You're not going to fix that quickly, it's taken a long time to, to you know maybe damage what's been damaged, but this is a long process, and our politics are very short. I always believe you know, we've always known, I've i hearing that for over 50 years. Uh, you know, Politics is uh, short-termism, short-termism. We need to sort of look at the long-term. And um, there are quick fixes for certain things. But if you want something to last and you want something to have depth, nature teaches us that. You know, trees don't
2: suddenly appear overnight. They take years to develop. When you think about the work that you're doing now through Cotswold mindfulness. I mean. So natural or mindfulness. Natural yeah. mindfulness. Don't the, forget natu- the-, the natural, natural bit. bit, yeah. What could someone who comes on one of your courses
1: or walks experience? It's a reconnection with nature and a reconnection to their what I call our true nature. Yeah. Because I don't think we really know our true nature. I think children, if you watch children, and I know you've got little ones, you watch them before they've kind of started to learn how to live in a manufactured, manipulated world. They're very natural. And there's just something about that that is self-sufficient so for me I think we lose touch as we grow up we have layers come over us and we lose touch with this natural side so for me natural is really important in terms of recognizing what's natural and what's manipulated
2: or or manufactured. So if I if we were obviously sat outside the cafe now (laughs) as you can hear with the dogs, (laughs) dogs and bands how would you guide me or introduce me to natural mindfulness? Well, actually, look, this is a good example. Some people say, do you have to go deep into a forest? Do you have to go deep into a woodland. Yeah. Well, well that,
1: that's one experience, but another experience is we're here. This experience actually is natural in terms of there's people here, there's a dog that we were hearing barking over there. Everything here has not come from another planet. It's all here. So in some ways it's natural, but some of it's been manipulated and changed in ways. And natural mindfulness is just about being connected to the natural you rather than the manufactured all kind of the person you're pretending to be the persona the personality the ego maybe as some might call it it's connecting to that more natural state so you're using your senses you're in the present moment i can feel a table i can hear noise you know, sound around me and in fact that was a good example there because natural is the first bit but the mindfulness bit is to not label so i call that noise yeah. So, because there's a part, because I know we're recording, there's a part of me that goes, oh, there's noise on the recording. Well, actually, it's just all sound. Yeah. My voice is sound, the dog is sound, children coming sound, bird life sound. Once we just hear it all as sound in the present moment, without putting any judgments on there, it, yeah, there's an acceptance of that. There's a kind of, okay, this, this is what it is. And there's just something lovely in our lives now, something very healthy, connected to well-being. That that is, it is what it is. And to just accept that is, one, it's very hard to do. It's it's even maybe. really Sometimes, hard. you know, yeah. oh, that's noise. It's the sound. Here, there's a lovely little thing I do here where we've got the A417 that comes up and so if we're in the woods over there, sometimes you'll hear the traffic as well as the bird song. and I'll often get people on a walk. They'll be walking with me in their lovely natural, nature-based, mindfulness walk and then somebody will say, oh. I say, oh, What's that? what can you, what's, what's that, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? noticing? What are you yeah. noticing? And I the A four one seven, I can just hear the, all the traffic noise. And I said, were well, you aware that that traffic noise is just one car after another, and inside that car is a person, and they might be going to work, they might be going home from work, they might be going to see a loved one, they might be going home to surprise their child, because normally they're at work. And, and every single one of them is an individual person, but when you hear it all together, it's noise. But when you think of it as just individual sound, moving through it's no different to the noise of the birds now it's part of nature so i'll say so which is more irritating the sound of the cars and the people going about their business or the noise of the birds and i'll switch the descriptor from That's noise really of cars or noise of birds as soon as you put noise of something in front of what you're talking about you already put a judgment on it and by putting a judgment on it you then have the potential to create feeling around what you're judging. So natural mindfulness to me is without judgment, noticing the naturalness of the world around you, even if we're sitting at a a coffee table where we could be wandering through nature. Don't have to be in nature because we are nature. We carry nature with us. And what I try and encourage people to do is come into nature for short periods of time, because we do live in cities and towns. That's where we we live now. Um, But come into nature for periods of time to relax to refresh to reinvigorate ourselves to notice to to switch on our mindfulness and then go back into the world of busy the world of create the manufactured mindlessness (laughs) that we kind of are in a lot of the time but bring that natural mindfulness with you so you can spot what's actually going on in the moment rather than be working to something that hasn't yet happened or happened before that you have no control over
2: So in our busy world (laughs) of stuff happening all the time, Time. have you found that your connection with natural mindfulness and taking it back into sort of regular life, if you Mm -hmm. like, has has that helped you to slow down? Has that helped you to be more aware of the things that are happening around you in sort of regular day-to-day activities?
1: Interesting you said slow down, because I'd say sometimes... But speed up sometimes as well okay. because you know this idea of slowing down. I can operate at a very fast pace, and people that know me will know I can generate lots and lots of stuff. But I'm not tired. Yeah. It doesn't. It's not exhausting. So what I think I've found is is this being naturally mindful means that I'm operating. On um, I don't know iOS 12 rather than <laughs> iOS two. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, other platforms are available. Other <laughs> platforms are available. Yeah, but this idea of you know upgrading, being able to upgrade yourself, and you know you and I we both um, were involved in the world of neurolinguistic programming many years ago, and that kind of idea of taking new models to base your life on rather than the old ones yeah. in terms of upgrading. You know, and I, I, rather than dwell on past failures and dwell on things that happened many years ago for me now, you know, I'd rather just look at this idea of, well, how do I upgrade myself? How do I work in the present moment and renew, refresh myself? And I find that it's this natural mindfulness approach to not just being out in the natural world, but being in my everyday life has huge benefits on things like my energy levels on things like my what I spot, what I notice, and how I can change thi- how I can change things and it 's very easy to change things in a manufactured mindless world because it 's mindless nobody 's really noticing, and you can change a lot of things when everybody else is asleep
2: <laughs> i 'm really interested in that idea of the mechanical world and that we 're in control, yet in the natural world we 're not in control and it 's unpredictable. Mm. And I guess I'm kind of left wondering, in that world where we feel that we may need to control so much, mm. how can we find a way of living with the uncertainty that the natural world offers?
1: That's a great question. And I think it is the question of our time. You could do a whole series on that question. And you know, going back to and I think I was saying to you before about how, you know, as a child, there was not a lot of certainty in my life. One of the reasons I would go up to the hill and be there was that was a certain thing I could, I could climb a particular tree well, the hill
2: was always going to be, be
1: there always <laughs> going to be there nature was always going to be there for me so that thing about you know, for a lot of people we have the illusion of certainty Yeah. from childhood parents give it to children I give it to my you know, I know we both have young children yeah, well, it we give them, give them certainty you keep <laughs> them safe with it however because I didn't have certainty I've learned to live with uncertainty and, and it just so happens we're moving into very uncertain times so i'm quite comfortable with that i'm quite cool that's yeah. my new thing that's my new ways of doing things whereas I, what i'm noticing is there's a lot of people around me that are not very well you know mental health issues yeah. around it's not what i would call clinical mental health issues it's actually every day mental health issues and so i can't sleep at night i'm not getting a full night's sleep i'm thinking i'm spending a lot of my day thinking about something that hasn't happened yet or I'm dwelling on something that's already happened and I can do nothing about, and we're trapped often in these, this, this kind of, you know, we're stuck in our minds. So for me, it's very much about moving into uncertainty um, and being comfortable with it. It doesn't have to be certain. Yeah. Nothing has to be certain.
2: And I don't think, maybe it's an illusion that nothing ever was certain, but maybe our perception of it What's if it was? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, all the things we used to trust, like religion, like newspapers, like the, you know,
0: people, <laughs> in <authority>, <laughs> people in authority.
1: We used to trust all those, and there are still places in the world where people do yeah. trust those. But before that, people used to trust an effigy, or they trust the yeah. sun, or they. You know, so we need something we can kind of go. Oh, I need to trust that. But I think where we're going in terms of this is going to be a big question. Where yeah. we're going in terms of humanity. It's not about trusting the world because the world is only our own perception of what's going on. So we've got to learn to trust ourselves. And you trust yourself by going, well, I can walk through chaos with some control over me. And what I'm noticing is there are certain people, and it's probably gone on for many, many years, there are certain people that can be in chaotic situations, but as long as within them is calm, within them is natural mindfulness, I guess, they have that within them. They seem to ripple out calm and control and you know maybe that's the new leadership we're looking for it's going to be not from people that shout the loudest or you know not from people that are paid the most uh, or have the best schooling but new leadership will come from people who emerge who can handle uncertainty who can you know they can guide and this is why i call people that that run these walks guides they're not leaders they're not teachers they're not gurus they're not coaches they're guides they're literally somebody who walked that path recently and can point out the pitfalls and can point out the
2: joys on that path. Because the path has both pitfalls and joys. I do find that, that how we view leadership and how that may be changing fascinating. Because mm. I, I do agree with you. I think that with so much change, particularly here in the UK at the moment, mm. I think it's probably felt globally in the developed world, we are going through turbulent times. Mm. And I think with that, we are going to need a new style of leadership and I'm left thinking about what could natural mindfulness teach leaders of today and the future. How do we go about introducing that idea that maybe inspiration can come from the natural world, not the mechanical world? Well, first of all, I go back to what you just said and take teach out. Yep.
1: And guide. Yep. Because again, I think that's the thing. they are so.
0: So, it's so installed
1: within
2: us, isn't it? The lead. What lead means, lead is, I have a
1: lead yeah. for my dog. <laughs> and if the dog doesn't want to go where I want it to go, I drag it by the lead. Yeah. So even lead is not a great word. So I say guide comes from the word vise, V-I-S is the, is the origin of the word, and that's where wisdom comes from. The guides were the wise people, were aware of the path, but they didn't force people down the path, they guided them.
2: Yeah. They kind
1: of showed them what was there and allowed people then to to find their own way. And one of the things I do with this is uh, you know, going forward, it's very much about saying to people, look, I'll guide you. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. You can find your own path. And I always say 50% of you know, the natural mindfulness trainings that I do, 50% is the stuff you've got to do. It's health and safety, it's a manual. Yeah. It's a, this is the stuff you've got to pay attention to. But then the other 50% is the uniqueness that another individual brings to it. And we've never, in our education system, we've never really allowed for that. We've kind of gone, this is, this is how you've got to be you going to be a lawyer. This is how you've got to be. If you're going yeah. to be a, I don't know, a manual worker, this is how you've got to be. Whereas, if we just said fifty well, percent of this is what you have to do, the other fifty percent is down to your creativity, your intuition, your and being you, being you, being the yeah. unique person you are. Put the unique bit of you into it as well. So, um, for me, natural mindfulness. It could be you know the opposite. The antidote to manufactured mindlessness or natural and mindfulness. Just be natural. Don't try and you know, manipulate yourself, just be who you truly are, doesn't mean be crazy, you go out there and just do wild stuff. It's yeah. about, you know, do it with maturity, do it with mindfulness. Because the opposite of mindfulness, again, as I say, is mindlessness. And I see a lot of manufactured mindlessness in the world. And maybe we need to connect to, you know, nature's been here much longer than we have. And we'll be here long after we're not, if we're not careful.
2: So, so much of this is really about, for us as human beings, doing some, having the, the space to do the inner work that we need to discover who we are. Uh, with nature offering some of the inspiration for that. I would often I would probably say as
1: well that it's all inner work, really, because you know Mm. we don't really know what's out there. We can only sense it with our senses. We can only see on a certain spectrum. You know, dogs can hear much more than we can hear. (laughs) You know, it's it's kind of we can only touch a certain amount. I know people that seem to have no feeling. You know, you go, I'll come into nature and go, Oh my god, this is amazing. What I'm seeing, hearing, feeling, smelling. I go, it's amazing. I get other people go, Oh, I'm cold, I want to go home. And you go, Wow, how did we get so detached and disassociated from our home because it was only I think it's something like 30 seconds if you took a 24-hour clock we've only lived in towns and cities and kind of these manufactured places for about 30 seconds to midnight the rest of the time human life was linked very strongly to nature so we're very early adopters of
2: a a
1: manufactured mindless world (laughs)
2: do you think with all the all the coverage there is at the moment around um, climate change, uh, extinction rebellion as a movement that started mm, not, far not far from, from here. here. Do you think there is a sense that people are becoming more consciously aware of that issue? That we are living predominantly in cities and towns, and I think sort of global project projections are that that trend will increase. Mm-hmm. So, are we entering a phase of consciousness where we're becoming more appreciative of our natural natural environment? I think we're at a crossroads.
1: It's only yeah. my view of what's going on, but I think I think we're at a crossroads. And, I, and you know, part of me thinks you know mankind may well have been at this crossroads before, depending on what you believe. But I think we can go, and that's the thing about freedom of choice. We can go one of different ways. You know, we can ignore our connection to nature and just use nature as something. That, you know, make, make furniture from or you know, kind of use for resources, um, or we can take a different path, become much more mindful and aware and intelligent and i actually think life becomes more i think i think think life becomes more intelligent it becomes more connected and i just think we're going through a transition at the moment where there is a chance that we're dumbed down ourselves because of technology and everything else we could dumb ourselves down but my belief is that i think there's enough aware people on the planet
2: that can take a different path i hope this time yeah absolutely (laughs) And I guess, I suppose, in a way, what you're offering is the invitation to a bit of a wake-up call for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was feeling unfulfilled in sort of 2000. I was feeling very unfulfilled and um, knew I was on the wrong path. No, I wasn't on the right path for me. Not necessarily the wrong path. It wasn't the right path for me. And actually, you know, 2014, when I started Cotswold Natural Mindfulness, it was literally me doing something that I felt drawn to do rather than something... I needed to do for financial security because yeah. um, financial security often takes away freedom and fulfilment. What I realised in my life yeah, is that in pursuit of financial security you lose those two. I'm and sure many people listening to this now will be wrestling with that same dilemma. Yeah. One of the things I've kind of found is that, and financial security is a perception, you know, we can have enough. I know people that have very little but have, feel financially secure and I know people yeah. that have a lot that don't feel financially secure so you've got to kind of just get, have enough, to me, have enough Once you've got enough, then you can focus on freedom and fulfillment. And so for me now, I have enough. I'm very lucky. I've I've been at times when I've had very little in my life. We talked about that. And now I'm at a time where I have an abundance around me and I have enough. Therefore, I can focus now on fulfillment and freedom. And so for me, I'm very fortunate that by being able to do that, I take away the financial security aspect of this. I can now focus on that. And I think if more people could do that, you would create, much more meaningful things. We would have a life that's not so much manufactured mindlessness or manipulated mindlessness and we'd have a life that's more natural for us as a species and as people and more mindful in terms of we're aware of the effect we have on ourselves but also on others and and can evolve, continue to evolve.
2: Well, I hope the conversation that we've had today will help some people think about that aspect of subtle disruption in their lives (laughs) and an opportunity really to stop to think and to find a way of reconnecting back with the natural environment. Well, the simplest way is to just go for, go for a walk mindfully. Go for a walk on your own. I did. I went for a walk. I was there for
1: five years. I was in the lake district for five years. But, um, it was a lot of walking. At some point, somebody <laughs> rang me up and said, when are you coming back? Yeah. Yeah, that's another story about how I got back. But, um, you know, life is a journey and it's not always great. But I think, you know, when life is, you know, the ups and downs of life, if you kind of learn from them and if you, you know, learn who yeah. you truly are from them,
2: then the journey can be amazing. So for people that want to find out more about natural mindfulness, are you online? Ironically, we've been talking about natural environment, but yeah, yeah, everyone has an
1: online or a digital life. You need to be online too, yeah. <laughs> Cotswold Natural Mindfulness is my website with uh, links. If you put in Cotswold Natural Mindfulness, you, you find me. I've written a book about natural mindfulness. I'm running guide trainings around natural mindfulness. So I'm kind of using natural mindfulness as a way of illuminating people who are interested in learning more about being more in touch with their
2: true nature. I know this particular podcast has originated from Adam Murray's work over in Australia. Yeah. Um, So we have quite a strong Australian listenership. For those people who are based on the other side of the world, what opportunities might there be for them to connect into this? Well, I have people all over the world now that are involved in natural mindfulness that
1: are uh, guiding. I run online guide training for people that are in, you know, that want to bring more natural mindfulness into their lives and people from Australia and New Zealand are involved in what I'm doing as well so um, that's great so it's not just a British British thing it's a global movement <laughs> well I'm, I'm quarter Swiss so uh, no definitely not <laughs> definitely not a
2: British thing <laughs> Ian it's been great having a chat with you thank you so much thank you yeah we look forward to finding out more about the next chapter
0: thank you hey thanks for listening We are looking to spread these stories of subtle disruption in organic ways so that more people like you can be encouraged by them. One way you can help is through sharing this episode with a colleague or friend, someone who you think could get something good out of this conversation. If you want to get in touch with suggestions for guests or anything else, you can reach us through adam at subtledisruptors.com. I'm Adam Murray, and one day I look forward to hearing about your own subtle disruption. Bye for now.